Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. You know, a lot of people think that SEO is a dark art in marketing and reserved for those who closely follow updates from Google to game the algorithm. But this could not be further from the truth. And thanks to companies like Ahrefs, everyone can do SEO. With their new tool called the Ahrefs Webmaster Tools, you can make tangible improvements to your SEO completely for free. You can monitor your SEO health, keep track of backlinks, do basic keyword research, and get automated email alerts straight to your inbox. Check it out at ahrefs.com AWT. You can find the link in the show notes and thank me later. On the show today is Benji Haim. Benji is the co-founder of the content marketing agency Grow and Convert, which works with largely B2B SaaS companies. I wanted to bring him on because I took Benji's course, Customers from Content, when I was first starting out in marketing, and it was a paradigm shift for me. Benji is one of the first people to really instill the practice of customer research into me and show very tangibly how it applies. So in our lengthy conversation, you'll hear about Benji's end-to-end content marketing playbook that's proven to get customers time and again for both himself and for clients. Also, the relationship between marketing and psychology. And three, the surprising truth about product market fit. So to start out, um, did you ever think that you'd be doing marketing for a living? Yeah, actually, well, I guess it depends what part of my life we're talking about. Right, right. Uh, growing up, I would say no. Um, so where I stumbled into marketing was a high school class on marketing, which is super (laughs) rare. Um, so I think prior to my junior, no, sophomore or junior year of high school, I had absolutely no clue what I wanted to do. I think I wanted to be in real estate or like do architecture or something. Don't ask me why. Um, but I, yeah, I took this class in, in high school and I remember one of the, the movies that we watched was the movie, What Women Want with Mel mm-hmm. Gibson, yeah. where he works at an ad agency and he, he gets the Nike account, Nike women's account, and he needs to come up with a commercial. And he basically in the movie can listen into women's minds to figure out what they want and I don't know what it was about that movie, but I watched it in that class and I just thought the idea of trying to figure out what people want to sell products was fascinating. And something clicked with me in that movie, as weird as it sounds. And in that class specifically, the the class was really well taught, I think. Um, But yeah, that's when it all kind of clicked for me. I would say I was a horrible student before that, like no motivation. Uh, And then from that point, I think I got a 4.0 the rest of high school because it motivated me to, to then want to get into a good school for marketing. That's fascinating. You know, what's funny is that, um, I sort of, you know, a little bit, uh, similar, like I, I wanted to, I thought I wanted to do accounting or finance, uh, maybe do like, I don't know, be a financial advisor or something kind of a mix of, you know, like a business and maybe more like personal finance stuff. And, um, but then I started doing all these marketing things. Like I was listening to all the podcasts and I was reading, you know, Seth Godin books. And, uh, I was like, you know, building a Shopify store for my friend. And, um, and then I was watching an episode of friends, the, uh, the sitcom. And, um, it's the episode where 
Chandler is trying to like restart his career. And so he's like, what can I do? And then he like stumbles upon this like intern position uh, at like an ad agency, right? And then like the homework assignment is like to come up with this way to sell these like flaming uh, roller skates. And he's like, how am I gonna do this? Like all these other kids, you know, are 20 years years younger than me. Um, So he decides to try them on and then he falls, you know, he's like, this isn't for, you know, guys my age. And then I kind of like light bulb moment for him. He's like, oh, like this isn't for old people. And so he creates this ad about like, um, you know, the old guy puts him on and he, and he falls and then like the young guy kind of skates by and he's like, you know, kind of laughing. But that actually to me, funny enough, was the moment where I was like, oh, you don't have to be like really like clever, extroverted, um, you know, witty person to be a marketer. You just need to know um, how to like position it, how to sell it. And like, you just need to be sort of a little bit more clever than the other people not necessarily like super clever to make the ad and you know it doesn't take a, a hollywood brain right you just have to think about how people buy things um yeah that's so fascinating buying- it's very it's very similar and i think it, it all it all harks back to customer research and understanding what people want and so yeah i think that's that's just been i, I remember that movie just in terms of how he figured out what the ad campaign to create was and try to apply similar principles just in my in my career and i think just throughout my career i've also realized that more often than not the messaging and positioning that works is not something that you come up with or that you steal from some other brand or something like that it really just comes from repeating back what you hear from customers Right. It's not rocket science. It's uh, <laughs> no. you go through the trouble of like actually talking to customers. I want, I want to get back to that in a second. Sure. Um, but walk me through like, so high school, I figured out, Hey, this marketing thing's kind of interesting college, early career. Like what were the steps that led you um, to really kind of breaking into marketing as a profession? Yeah. So high school realized I wanted to do marketing. Um, I didn't know what school I really wanted to go to. So I think for me, I knew I wanted to stay in California. I was deciding between UC and uh, the state school system. I decided on the state school system just because from everything that I heard, it was more like practical versus very theory-based. Uh, and then it kind of came down to going to Long Beach or going to San Diego State. And I had friends that had gone to Long Beach before and raved about it. And so I actually accepted Long Beach. <laughs> and I took a tour on campus maybe like three or four weeks before I was supposed to start there and I just didn't get a good vibe from being on campus like no one really looked happy and like so I started questioning my decision and so I had applied to San Diego State and I didn't get in at this time Uh, so I decided to appeal my application and I basically appealed they said I was rejected again And I said, like, what do I need to do to get in? I'm going to the school. And they said, so maybe I was remembering the story wrong. I I did it. So I was trying to appeal San Diego State prior to accepting Long Beach. Mm. um, Because I I appealed, I think, my last semester in um, high school. And they said I needed to basically get 0.01 GPA points higher to even be like on the list to be qualified to get in. And so, yeah, I continued to get a 4.0 that year. And so I just got enough GPA points to, to be able to get into the school. 
I appealed again. They still said I was rejected. I like wrote this long letter to like the dean of the school, and I, through sheer luck, I think at this point they they ended up accept, accepting me a month before I got in. And so I had already accepted Long Beach. I went to go tour the school, and I just didn't get the good feeling from it. And I remember I'd never been to San Diego State, despite growing up in San Diego. And so I remember walking around on campus and I just got the completely opposite feeling. Mm-hmm. And I just decided to, to switch my acceptance and go there. Uh, so I went to San Diego State. They had a new degree at the time called Integrated Marketing Communications. And so crazy now like that I ended up in the career that I'm in, but I'd never expected this. It was a cross between uh, journalism, media studies, and then marketing which is really interesting. So in school, we, we kind of talked about the rise of online media and the demise of traditional journalism. But I like at that point, I never knew I wanted to get into content marketing or anything like that. Um, really in school, then my path to the career. So in 2008, my parents lost like a ton of money just in, in the financial crisis. And so from that point, I think I was like 20, I was fully on my own supporting myself, like how to pay my way through school. So I took a job my junior year in college, like a full-time job at a startup that was a printing company. Um, And I ran sales and marketing there. And so I just kind of had to do everything from Mm. finding leads to actually closing deals, like prospecting all the way through closing. Um, because of that, one of the ways that I had found to sell back then, so this, yeah, this was like 2009, 2010 time period, uh, was through LinkedIn. So I would go in some of these groups and I would post around like creating t-shirts for companies and stuff like that. And I was getting deals through that. And because of that, I had filled out my LinkedIn profile like pretty well at this point in time. And so over the summer going into my last year of school, I had someone reach out and just said, hey, your, your profile looks interesting. We have this job open for a social media coordinator, which you want to interview for this. And I was like, sure, I have nothing else going on. I mean, everyone goes to college to get a job. I might as well just go interview at this job. So that ended up being my first job at uh, Vistage International. So I started as a social media coordinator uh, Really, I was just managing their social media accounts. And then my first project was, hey, we have this blog, do something with it. We're like, we're not really doing much with it. And that that was actually how I got into content marketing. So it was kind of random. It was just this project that was kind of handed to me. And yeah, I, I ended up working with these writers and getting blog posts from them. At the time, I I thought I was doing well, but in hindsight, I feel like I still didn't know what I was doing, but it was, it was growing. So we grew the blog to 20,000 views in, in the first year. And then I started branching out into other areas of marketing from there. So I, I took my Google Ads, AdWords certification. I wanted to get into SEO. And at that point in time, I, I had this feeling that social media was going to be field that was dying for some reason and so i wanted to broaden out into other areas of marketing and just kind of try different things with the eventual goal of uh running marketing at a company so that's that was kind of just the path from college into the career and then basically from there when i decided i wanted to run marketing um 
I had a CMO that was just a really good mentor at Vistage as well. And he just said, cool, if you want to run marketing for a company, some really good advice would be go find a job description at a company that you would really want to work at and write down what skill sets you're missing in order to, to get this job. And then that's what we should work on in your career to help build those skill sets to get you to where you want to go. So I think that was really good advice in hindsight. So that, that was when I said I broadened out and did a lot more than just social media. That's where that, that came from because I realized, okay, if I want to be, if I want to run marketing at some point in my career, I need to learn about every facet of marketing. I can't just be hyper specialized in one area. So in my career, I, I then broadened out into all these different areas and got enough expertise in all of them. And then what was weird is I eventually came back and decided I wanted to specialize in one area. Right. Right. But I, I mean, I think that's, yeah, it's interesting because you started out in as a social media coordinator, but basically became the content marketer through sort of getting the job. And they were like, Hey, we have this blog thing and social media is then, you know, sort of a means to an end. Whereas back then it very much was like, Oh, we need someone to manage our Twitter and our Facebook. And now it's like, okay, well, <laughs> not just like going to create content for that. Like you're promoting things on there and you're, you know, creating native content, but, uh, but then that sort of, uh, general experience led to especially specializing down into content marketing. Like what was it about content marketing that sort of, uh, captured you or, you know, made you eventually realize this is sort of the area that I want to specialize on. Yeah, I, I think it was in in every career or every job after that, for whatever reason, the company ended up growing through content marketing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just looking back on all my experiences, especially after moving to San Francisco and running marketing for a couple of companies there, both of the companies that I grew there were largely through content. I mean, we, we tested other channels and, and there were other things that led to success there as well, but content was the main driver. And really what it was for me was after, it wasn't after leaving my last company, but as I was trying to figure out how to leave the last company that I worked for, I kept having other people that ran marketing for other companies ask me, how did, how did you grow those companies via content? Because it's really difficult. I can't figure it out. And I just realized it was a common theme amongst marketers. Like what felt easy to me, I realized a lot of other people were having challenges with, and I had just kind of overcome a lot of those challenges on how to hire a writing team, like editing, growth, like content promotion was a huge challenge. And so I was sharing a lot of this advice with people and I just kept having people reach out to me for the same stuff. It was, uh, we're trying to grow our company through content marketing. Can you help me? I read... I read your case study on ThinkApps, or I heard you know how to do this. And so I just kept having more and more people ask questions around it. And that's kind of when I just realized, uh, maybe I do know something that other people don't. And it's kind of weird because I think that happens just in everyone's career. When you're doing something long enough, the things that you think are simple or like the common questions that you have, or like oftentimes when someone says like, how do you know what to write about? And you're like, I don't have anything unique or original to say. It's only when you publish something that you realize maybe I do know something that's different than what most people know. Like after being in a field mm -hmm. for a long enough time, you just assume everyone kind of knows the same stuff as you. And I think through publishing, 
my writing and my thoughts, I just realized that's not true. And so that's kind of what led me to, to wanting to publish more. It's just, I, so in, in that first job in Vistage, I remember I got challenged to write a blog post and I was very uncomfortable writing. Like I don't consider myself a writer at all. Um, I've considered myself a marketer who can write. Like writing is a way for me to clarify my thoughts. And I was challenged to write a blog post and I said, it can be on any business topic at all. And I chose to write on the explosion of Snuggies. If you remember what, <laughs> what Snuggies oh, I love were. It. But this was, yeah. So this was like 2010 when like Snuggie was like a hot item. And I wrote this blog post, to be honest, I have no clue what it was about, but I remember 300 and something people read it. And I was just like, wow, this is really interesting. I can publish something and 300 people care what I have to say. And so I, I was doing, um, part of my job was training CEOs how to set up their LinkedIn at, at, when I was at Vistage. And so I was hmm. flying around the country and speaking to groups of 25 to 50 CEOs on, on this. And I remember it was taking up a lot of my time. And so to optimize how much time I was spending training, because I was also doing like phone, like basically at this point it was um, go to meeting calls. I was right, doing right. these web webinars, teaching people how to do this. And I was, I was doing one-on-one -on -one calls like this. And so I decided, oh, to optimize my time, why not do like group session and then to further optimize my time why not just write all this out in an article? And mm -hmm. so I wrote that article and it got like 20,000 views. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. I can go speak in front of a room of people and reach 25 to 50 people, or I can write an article and hit 20,000 people. And I think that was kind of when I ha had the aha moment that there's something to this writing and that I want to continue doing it because just the amount of people that you can reach if you have something interesting or unique to say, uh, it, it's pretty much infinite and there's no other channel like it. So that's, that's kind of what got me hooked on it. Hmm. Yeah. There, there's a lot of, uh, leverage, right. Especially with the internet. And it's interesting. I didn't really realize how, um, sort of ahead of the times you were, but also that, uh, Vistage was just being able to enable you to further kind of like, you know, see into the future and sort of see like, Hey, this whole like content thing's actually pretty interesting. And because of the internet, like you can just, publish something and then a whole bunch of people will see it. Um, now a lot of the sort of tactics and strategies have changed since, you know, 10, 11, 12 years ago, but a lot of the same principles and still kind of core value of content has stayed the same. Um, and I'm curious, like for you, what is it that you think that most people are, are getting wrong about content today? Like 10 years ago, it was a new thing. It was very much like, oh, you can, like, what's this blogging thing? Like, isn't that for fun or isn't that for, uh, for, for moms, you know, or something like that. But now it's seen very much as a business thing, but still there's a gap between, um, sort of what people should be doing and how they're thinking about it currently. I mean, I could speak on just this topic all day. We have a whole business around <laughs> Let's this, do but, it. <laughs> but I would, but I would say the number one thing that I think people get wrong just in their thinking is assuming that the way people do things is the best way to do them. So, so here's an example. HubSpot came out with their, their inbound marketing method in 2000, whatever, eight, nine, 10, something around that. They really popularized this concept and they pushed the whole thinking that the best way to do content marketing is to write blog posts, 
capture email addresses, nurture them. And so that's pretty much the strategy that everyone used for the, the last 10 years. And no one really questioned, is this the best way to do content marketing? And so when, when I came into my role, I believe in, at ThinkApps, so my fir the first startup that I, I ran marketing for in San Francisco, when I started to be held accountable to qualified leads, I started questioning, is this the most effective way to drive qualified leads? Like, it seems like it takes a long time for someone to read a blog post to then join an email list, to open the email that you send them, to then click through to like, it was just seemed like a long process. And I was like, is this the best way to do things? And so I just I started experimenting with different ways. And so I remember the first test that I ran was on a blog post, I, I used Sumo to time a pop-up of, of someone who got to like two minutes on an article. And then instead of um, just pushing them to the email list, say, my thinking was if someone spent two, article, two minutes on this article reading it, they're probably having enough trouble on this topic to want to have a conversation with someone. So instead of just capturing the email, I said, would you want to speak with like a, a mobile development consultant about this issue? And I, I, instead of using an email pop-up, I, I said, put in your phone number and we'll give you a call. And then we would just get a, on a call with someone straight off a blog post. And some of them would actually convert to, to sales. And so that's kind of just when I was questioning, like, is this whole lengthy process that everyone uses for content marketing the best way? And now I had a couple of data points to prove that maybe there was another way to do it. And so I think that was the first kind of change in thinking about content marketing. And then that really, like when we decided we wanted to do our agency, I carried that same belief system through, which is everyone is focusing on, on content marketing this way. It, a lot of companies don't get results from content marketing that way. So it was just starting with the question in my mind, is the way that everyone is doing it the best way or is it wrong? And so hmm. I kind of come to the conclusion that something wasn't right about it. And so the start of our business was just, if we work back from what the goal is, which is to drive leads and get revenue from a business, how would we rethink the entire approach? Like what's wrong with the way that people are approaching content strategy, the way that people are measuring conversions, the way that people are writing things. And so I think it was because of that mindset that we ended up with the service and the different ways that we run our agency now compared to most people. So mm -hmm. it, it all starts with that premise. And I would say that carries across every industry right now. Like I think right now there's, we're going through more change at an accelerated pace than ever before. And industries are changing really quickly. The way that we do things are changing really quickly. And I think there's not enough people questioning, are the ways that we're doing everything the best ways to do things? Because we've always been doing them this way. And I think people have this misconception that, well, if, if something's worked this way for 20 years, it must be the best. I can't question that norm. And I think mm. to me, there's so many opportunities and just questioning, questioning the norm, getting down to 
the goal. What is the goal that you're trying to achieve or what are you trying to accomplish? And then asking yourself a set of questions and working backwards to try to figure out, is this the best approach or is it not? Is there, is there some other way to do things? Hmm. What, what have you found are some of the other things uh, that were, I don't know, interesting or surprising about, uh, you know, you be, being able to find a, a new or better way to do things, you know, so you give the example of basically yeah. the, the call to action from a blog post, like what are the other applications that you've seen? Yeah, I can just walk through like our whole process. So like yeah. basically what we realized was every part of the process was broken. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it our whole, we have a four-step process. So user research, content production, uh, promotion, and then conversions. So on the customer research side and why we pushed this so much from the very beginning was from my experience running growth for companies. So same thing in growth hacking or growth marketing, it all starts with customer research. And what I realized having been in, in San Francisco and Silicon Valley and working in the tech world was that most people tried to shortcut that. And mm-hmm. that there was the most valuable learnings from that exercise. So when I, when I joined ThinkApps, the first thing that I did in the company was I talked to the first 10 clients. I bought them coffee or lunch or a drink. And I just went and sat with them in person, try to understand what they were building, why, um, what the, what other agencies that they had tried before, what other challenges that they had tried building it. And from those conversations, I learned so much just about their struggles and that kind of stuff. And so from like a positioning standpoint and everything, we were very empathetic towards people trying to build products. And I think that's what really stood out in the way that we message and try to help people and it all stemmed from that customer research. And when I talked to a lot of the other marketers, everyone was so focused on tactics or we're trying this channel and this channel. And when you ask like, who's the customer and what do they care about? And it's just some of the deeper questions, most of the people can answer that. And I just realized it was a very common problem in all of marketing, which is just not enough focus on customer research, either just people felt uncomfortable reaching out to customers and having conversations with them, or they just didn't think it was valuable, or it's just not the sexy part of marketing. It's like, you're not testing stuff and trying new things. And it's not really, you could argue it's not that creative, even though I would say it somewhat is. Um, So that was, that was a huge problem is I felt like if you're going to create content, you have to know what people want in order to create content that, relates to them or that's interesting or solves a problem for them. And so that was when, when we dug into how companies did content marketing or how other agencies did content marketing, we realized everyone skipped over that step. And I felt like that was really important to, to dig in there, to be able to even figure out what to write. Then when it came to the writing portion, so the content production portion, we didn't get this right from the very beginning at all. Um, so I had run writing teams. I would say in hindsight, the content that we produced was subpar. Uh, like I, I wouldn't say it was good by any means. So our initial knee-jerk reaction when we started the agency and got our first couple of clients, uh, we didn't have writers on our team. Davis and I were not intending to write any of the blog posts was to go hire subject matter experts in the space that we were writing about. It didn't work for a couple of reasons. Uh, one would be that even though a writer has subject matter expertise, it might not be enough expertise to represent the views of the company 
or they might have a very different perspective on the topic than the company has. Like if you start a company, you start it because you see a problem that you're typically trying to solve. And so your understanding of that problem is just different than someone else who had a completely different experience with the problem. And so hiring a writer to be the voice of the company that doesn't share those same views and experiences, there's just a very big disconnect in what you want to produce versus mm. what, what the outcome is. And so we kind of stumbled into testing a bunch of different things and, and realizing we need to interview team members inside of the company because they live and breathe these problems every day. They talk to the customers all the time. They have a, a they're like doing the work. And so they can explain how the product or the service solved the problem for specific use cases and examples. And so that was the approach that we ended up rethinking there hmm. was instead of, well, I didn't even get to the other one, but the other, the other big problem that people have in the writing is they just hire a freelance writer who knows nothing about the topic. Right. They're like, they're like a marketing blogger. And then they say, Hey, go write on, I don't know, content marketing, like this content marketing tactics. And then what does the writer do? They go content marketing tactics. Okay. They Google, they Google content marketing tactics, read the top 10 blog posts. Like, okay. And then they like try to reassemble it and it ends up being a Google research paper, Yeah. which, yeah. which is just like, you read it and you're like, I don't even understand what this person's trying to say. There's no logical arguments in it. And so it was mainly we ran into companies using one of those two methods, either hiring a freelance writer who didn't have expertise or they were a little bit more advanced trying to find someone with a background in this, but both methods broke down. And so what we ended up on was um, this process of using our writers to interview subject matter experts inside of the company who have that expertise and then just use their expertise to create a blog article on the topic. Um, so that was the, oh, the other big challenge in the production part is the strategy. So again, going back to the SEO side of it, we realized that most SEO agencies cared more about volume than they did about conversion intent because they weren't tracking all the way through conversions. And so oftentimes they, like an agency would see traffic skyrocketing and they're like, oh, this is great. We're getting a hundred thousand visitors a month from the blog. And then you talk to like the CMO or the VP of marketing or the CEO and they'd be like, well, this is great, but we're not actually seeing real results coming from this. And then if you looked in the Google analytics, you'd realize, well, like 60 or 70,000 of those hundred thousand views came from one blog post. And it was yeah. some top of funnel thing that had nothing to do with the product. And you're like, oh, well, that's, that's why. Yeah. yeah. And so the, it's not to say that we're geniuses or anything and came up with this process because we didn't. But what we started to realize as we did content marketing for more and more accounts is certain types of blog posts had like two to four to 10 X conversion rate as the others. Mm -hmm. And so it was that insight that led us to question, well, why is that happening? What, mm -hmm. what is going on here that is causing such an increase in conversion rate? And Davish had an example of this from uh, his CRO experience where he was tasked to do CRO for a, blog, a SaaS blog. And it was this exact example where they had one blog post that was generating 70,000 views a month. And 
he ran all sorts of tests to try to increase the conversion rate and nothing worked. Hmm. And so we both came to the same conclusion differently that the intent of the blog post, what the topic is, affects the conversion rate more than any other conversion mechanism or anything else like that. And so yeah. we just realized that most people, when they thought about blog strategy, didn't really think of it in conversion intent, mainly mm -hmm. because of the goals that they measured. Because there is such a tracking and attribution problem just in marketing overall, most like the logic that most content marketers or in-house marketers have is that either I can grow blog traffic and optimize for conversions later. I know these things because I, I this used <laughs> to be me for sure. Right. I, or it's like, oh yeah, well, I know if we grow traffic, some subset of that traffic converts and that's what you tell your CEO, but you can't say how much or, or anything like that. And so yeah. the, the whole goal of agencies or in-house marketers was just to grow traffic thinking that traffic equals conversions. And then what we realized is, well, Yes, but not all traffic is equal. Some traffic equals way more conversions than other traffic. And so our whole process is just built around driving conversions. And so again, our business was built, the agency was built aligning the end goal with what we thought marketers in-house would care about. If, mm. if you, Corey, are at bare metrics, which you're not anymore, but even if you were, and you're held accountable to how many new signups that you get as your main guiding light, and then you hire an agency who cares only about traffic, there's a misalignment in goals. And so we wanted right. to make sure that our goal aligned with what you would care about as a marketer. And once we had that goal and worked backwards, it changed the way that we thought about what content we needed to produce, having looked at the analytics and the data. Hmm. And so, yeah, that last part is conversion and, and oh, no, sorry. Step three is promotion. Promotion. Could I, could I pause you for a sure. second and just jump in on, um, on the production side, because I feel like one of the things, again, if you take that same thinking of, is this really the best way or the right way to do this? I think even with the writing process, there's a big kind of bottleneck because exactly what you described, most people will just kind of um, do the uh, high school student research process of just basically summarizing and regurgitating other blog posts on the front page of Google, right? And then like, what does that get you? Well, it just gets you like, a GTP three version of another blog post, right? You're just kind of like synthesizing and then like regurgitating. Um, but it's even, it's interesting you mentioned the, the subject matter ex ex experts because um, a lot of times they might not be a writer, quote unquote. So like they have all this content expertise, uh, great insights in their head, but they can't really put it on you know pen and paper or get it into a Google doc or like format it in a way that would be conducive to uh, you know, a, a search engine optimized blog post, right? And so by using the writer as basically an interviewer, and it really, I mean, it comes back to that user research part again, it's a little bit meta, but um, that might be, you know, sort of the best way, quote unquote, to do it really is if you're, because then neither side is the bottleneck of like yeah, uh, exactly. the production side with the writer or the subject matter expertise. Yeah, I mean, CEOs, oftentimes have tons of thoughts on this stuff, but their challenge is, well, I'm not a writer. I don't have time to write. So yeah. for us to just say, hey, let's have a 30, let's hop on a 30 minute Zoom call like this. Let's talk through this, this subject and the end result will be a blog post on this. Makes it way easier for those people. Hmm. 
yeah, that's that's a huge win. Okay, so I I paused you, but you're just yeah, about no to get into uh, promotion. Yeah, so promotion. So the common wisdom was just has always been, I think, in content marketing. SEO is the end goal. Just wait for Google, and you're going to get results. And so again, I think this the the challenging of that thinking came from the need to get results faster. Being in a startup, you don't have the luxury of I have three years in this role and I can get results by year three. It's like, you have a lot of pressure coming from all angles, from the VC, yeah. from your founders. Uh, and so I had like six months to prove things out. And so with, with those kind of time constraints, you start to think, well, how, how would I approach this differently? The community, so community content promotion is really what I ended up stumbling into. Um, this was back in 2014 uh, when we were doing content marketing at ThinkApps. And I don't remember how I first tested it, but just being active in forums like that, we started pub like posting some of our articles in there and it was driving a good amount of traffic like really quickly. And so we just kept doing it and then slowly grew the blog to, well, not slowly, but quickly grew the blog to 35,000 monthly unique visitors. Um, most of that traffic ended up coming from SEO, but what really laid the groundwork was getting the blog posts out there through communities and then getting people to link to them. And then uh, we also had one article get picked up by like 200 publications. And so that really helped the amount of backlinks that came to our website and drove a ton of authority, which helped us rank. So all these things just happened as a result of just kind of rethinking the promotion process. So now our promotion process is different for the agency because hmm. a couple of things changed since 2014. One, people started realizing that this is a good promotion channel. And so you have <laughs> a flood of people sharing bad content in all these communities, yeah. Yeah. moderators get pissed and then it starts becoming less effective. So that was one thing that kind of changed. And the second thing was, as we grew our agency and had multiple clients, it didn't become scalable at all. And in some industries, it was extremely challenging. So you had like, imagine me being a marketer, being in marketing groups, that makes a ton of sense. But then if you get a company in development, now you have to go find development forums and you have to engage there and portray yourself as one of them, which is not easy to do. So that kind of killed community content promotion for us. Uh, it's not mm. to say that it doesn't work. I would say there's opportunities anytime everyone thinks something is dead. So th right. there's, maybe this is the resurgence. <laughs> yeah. May, maybe there's a time right now to, to retry this method. We're not um, going to say that because we don't want uh, everyone else to catch on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but what we do now is we do two things. So we think about promotion in two ways, short-term and long-term. Mm -hmm. So short-term, there's a ton of different things that you can try. Um, we've tested Facebook ads. We've tested Twitter ads. We've tested Google ads. We've tested all sorts of different stuff. And so really now we're thinking paid channels are the best way to get in front of people just for, for scale purposes at an agency and because the, the results kind of speak for themselves there. So we're using paid traffic to drive initial uh, traffic to all the articles that we publish. And then we follow it up with SEO. So most of the blog posts that we create have some sort of keyword focus. 
we push paid traffic to it and then we're simultaneously building links to try to get it to rank for whatever keyword we're going after. And so hmm. that's the current process around promotion. I don't know what? if you want to dig in there. Yeah. Yes, no, absolutely. Did you, when you said Google ads, um, did you try promoting blog posts through Google ads? Like most Google ads are like straight to a product page or a demo page or something, but um, here's what you tried. And also, I mean, it sounds like it, maybe it didn't work that well, but you tell me. It, so I don't have a ton of data on it, but from the early indications, it works extremely well, but really, it depends what your goal is. So mm -hmm. again, going back to this, our main goal isn't to drive traffic to the articles, it's to drive conversions. And right. so the thinking was, everyone is using Google ads to push people to a landing page for whatever keyword you're going after. And the landing page really doesn't add that much value or describe a lot about the product, really doesn't argue why you're better than other competitors or anything like that. It's just a landing page to capture leads. What if we push traffic to a blog post that really argued why your product is better than anyone else's, or it talks about the nuances of how to solve some problem with your product. And so from a conversion perspective, it's worked pretty well. And so the key is finding, so like our process lends itself really well to Google ads because pain point SEO is not about going after the highest volume stuff. So again, highest competition mm -hmm. in, in AdWords, you're, you're trying to find high intent, low competition terms that you can go after. So again, lower cost. And so when we publish, um, actually, so we, we didn't do this. One of our clients started hmm. doing dynamic Google ads for the same keywords that we were targeting to see if it would accelerate conversions. And we were seeing conversions pretty much double. Wow. Um, so Yes, it, it is something that we're experimenting with. The challenge for an agency doing this is that unlike Facebook business manager, where you can run ads for another client with Google ads that you can't run duplicate ad instances at the same time for the same company. Oh, right. yeah. And so that makes it somewhat logistically challenging for us to do as an agency for someone else. But mm -hmm. I still, in terms of like a takeaway for other people, that this is like a huge thing that I think people, people can and should test. Yeah. Well, it, it seems like, you know, one of the things I always um, look for in marketing, you mentioned, you know, as soon as something, everyone declares it dead, like it might be, uh, you know, a signal to revisit that thing. And I feel like it's the same thing for like, when everyone says um, that something uh, like when everyone's doing something in a certain way, like look for a completely opposite or different way to do that exact same thing, right? So it takes something like Google ads. I've actually had that thought, but I don't have the guts to go test it myself. Um, but you know, everyone runs it to the landing page or the product page. Um, but what if you ran it to some sort of um, guide or blog post or calculator or, you know, something else that basically, like I said, adds value and, but also stands out, right? I mean, I think, so much of marketing sometimes is just like doing something different and like that in and of itself is enough to like force it to work. Yeah. Also like from a CRO perspective or just conversion rate perspective, people could argue, okay, well the conversion rate to the landing page to lead is probably going to be way higher, but are you actually tracking that all the way through the funnel? So hmm. yeah, maybe on a pure one-to-one -one basis, the conversion rate to a free trial or something is higher, but have you looked at, 
people who read this blog post and made it all the way through and how good of a customer they are versus just people that clicked free trial and maybe got into the product. It wasn't that valuable. They didn't get the whole explanation on the messaging, the value proposition, all that kind of stuff up front. So Mm -hmm. I think that's something that can lead people to the wrong conclusion sometimes is just looking at the wrong indicators and then making too quick of decisions to, to turn something off quickly just because of this conversion rate just beat this by 1% or half a percent. So this is the better option. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I think you just have to look at things more holistically and, and try different things. Let, let the test run for longer than like a week or something and just see Mm -hmm. what plays out. And also like one thing that we do a lot is we talk to prospects. Like, so, so anyone, like anyone who comes in to grow and convert as a lead, the first question we ask them is how did you hear about us? And it's funny, it, like just that question alone, I don't know why more salespeople don't ask it, but mm. especially when you're doing inbound, you learn so much about the nuances of what works that you wouldn't have known just by looking at pure data in GA or some other tool. And so oftentimes if we were just looking at analytics, we would probably stop doing things even though mm. they worked. And so I would say that's that's another reason to, to do that and then also just test test different things yeah yeah so i, I want to get to the, the organic sort of promotion sure i'll um, go back there but i'm curious to follow that thread a little bit further on the sure. um the paid channels so we've covered google ads like what are the other paid channels you've been testing yeah twitter twitter mainly for our own agency uh, mm-hmm. we've tested on another client and had very similar results but it's worked very well which is again, funny because if common wisdom is Twitter ads suck and they don't work and they're horrible. And like, if, I don't know, on, on Twitter, people are like, oh, I've never clicked a Twitter ad before. And it's like, yeah, I mean, neither have I really, but if you design your tweet in the way that it's not an ad, like most people think about it, they work. So yeah. it's, it's just the same, it's the same thing of like Google ads, like, well, everyone, is doing a Google ad pushing people to a landing page. And maybe people are just tired of that. So same on on Twitter. Well, if I create some movie and like some opt-in and try to like trick people to click my ad, maybe that doesn't work because it's annoying and it's not the way that people normally use Twitter. So it starts from, on Twitter, I noticed myself, it's the only channel that I go to get new content. I, I follow certain people in our industry. I, start, I follow people in finance because it's a it's a space that I'm interested in learning more about. And I just realized I'm consuming all of my content through Twitter. There's probably a lot of other people like me that that's the only source that they get new content from because it's it's smart people. There's all these interesting articles being shared and conversations being had here. So it started with that premise and then it was okay, well, what do I click on on Twitter? I click articles, I click like controversial stuff, opinionated stuff. And so Hmm. it's combining those two things into the ad. So I tweet just like I would normally, and I share my article with some controversial take on content marketing and then share the article and I promote that organic tweet. So it looks like just a normal tweet that I would tweet anyways. And so it's very natural in Twitter. So that that's that's what works. So I mean, the, the whole Twitter ad strategy is literally just basically promote, tweets, your tweets. promote them. <laughs> yes, there, there, it, has, right? 
there has been interesting stuff that we've tested beyond that, I will say. So like we have an article that explains the entire value proposition of our agency. So the article is literally our sales pitch that we would give on a phone call with someone in written form. And we've right. promoted that. And it basically talks about all the problems that you're going to face if you work with agencies. And so anyone who has worked with another agency in content marketing is like, yes, I've had this problem. Yes, I've had this problem. Yes, I've had this problem. Oh, here's the solution. Oh, you guys do things differently. I want to talk to you. And so we promoted that article and that over the summer, we got a lead a day from, from Twitter ads, uh, wow. probably alone. So it, it definitely works. I just think people need to rethink the strategy in the context of their business. Hmm. And then what exactly are you targeting? Are you targeting uh, your own followers, someone else's followers, a different sort of methodology for targeting? Yeah, it's, it's all based on followers. It's not our followers. It's all trying to back into, if I was one of our customers, what accounts would they follow to get information? So like, who are the influencers in the industry? Create a segment for those people. Who are the software uh, vendors in the industry that they might follow? Create a segment for those people. Uh, what community sites would they follow? So again, hacking the community method, but instead of going directly into the community, follow community or promote against community accounts, another right. way to back into it. So there's all sorts of different things that we're testing. I wouldn't say we're, we're perfect on that side of things, but with Twitter, I think the ability to advertise to followers of another account, I, I almost think is better targeting than some of the stuff on Facebook or any of the oh, other yeah. channels, because you just know if I'm trying to find someone like this person, these are more likely the accounts that they will follow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's pretty fascinating. And so, so then what about uh, Facebook ads? Cause I know that that was at least a part of the strategy a year or two ago, but I don't know if things have evolved since then. Yeah. So we tested that in probably late 2018. Uh, so about a year after we started the, the agency, just because we started to running into scaling issues. And I just was thinking, I know Facebook has chip cle ah, cheap click costs. <laughs> so I wonder if it would work for a lot of the clients. And so we just tested and it did work. Um, so I'm not a Facebook ads expert. I always believe in outsourcing everything that you're not an expert at and just focusing on your core competencies. And so by happenstance, I ended up rooming with uh, someone who had previously worked at Facebook, started right. a Facebook ad agency. And so he started running all these tests for us, kind of proved it worked. And so he's their agency now still runs all of our ads for, for Facebook. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing in terms of the strategy there is it's, it's kind of a difficult thing with content promotion, because if you think you're always creating new content, so how do you determine what content to promote, which ones stay on, which ones come off. And so mm. like, this has been a challenge that we've been experimenting with a lot. And I still don't know if we have the right conclusion yet because there's, I can get into some of the nuances, but basically what we have in terms of an account structure is you have a campaign that is articles that you're testing where like 25% of the budget goes there uh, or maybe it's even less, like 20% of the budget that goes there. Then we have like an always on campaign. And so these are articles that have proven to get 
cheap click costs and then also conversions. And you just want to run continuous traffic to those, knowing that they're going to yield both traffic and conversions. And then we have a, a retargeting audience that we're running stuff to. Um, so, and then the, the budgets are different between those segments, the largest budget going to the ones that are proven to work. And so right. every month we're testing three new articles in the testing one, and then moving the high performing ones to the always on campaign. And then we have just a separate remarketing one where a lot of the bottom of the funnel articles get pushed to. Um, so that's kind of the thinking of it now. Some of the challenges is that because the budget is split between different campaigns and then a lot of different articles, sometimes spend doesn't get allocated evenly. Like one article in the ad set will take up a lot of budget. So that's, that's some of the challenges that we're working through right now in terms of it's like not perfect, but doing this compared to what we were previously doing, which is just kind of like, it was kind of like ad hoc. We were just had like a bunch of articles in there and just kind of like turning them off and turning them on. This 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 is a much better process, I, I would say, going forward. Yeah, a little bit more, more organized. Um, again, I think it's interesting. Like once you think about conversions of content and not just the traffic of it, then it really does unlock the ability to use paid channels and, you know, promote tweets or just like target cold audiences on Facebook, where you could never do that with a landing page or with a, you know, more product centric or sales focused um, page. And, uh, you know, cause it's imagine, right. Trying to make the case of like, Hey, we're going to pay people to come read. And then like, we don't know if they're going to convert but like that's the reality of what For most sure. people are doing when they're running ads anyways let alone just content marketing well i'd say that's why most people don't use facebook ads or use paid channels to promote content because at the end of the day you're like what am i spending this money for so i gotta pay to create content i gotta pay to um just get seen and unless there's an roi focus it, it just it really doesn't make sense and so that mm -hmm. was a lot of the pushback that i always gotten from my bosses and and my past jobs was that that alone it's like well we're paying all this money what is the return going to be and i could never that answer that question again because i had the same argument that everyone else did well we can't really measure content it's not perfect or just some subset of the traffic will convert and they're like well how much how am i supposed to estimate how many leads i'm going to get and like back into the math of this and it's like i don't know <laughs> that was always my answer because i truly didn't know but I think if you start with that focus and you're like, okay, well, how, how can I solve this problem? Even if it's not perfect, it gets you closer to the answer. So even the last step that we never talked about was conversions and, and, yeah. and tying it back to that kind of stuff. So as I said, I was the marketer who, who gave all those same arguments that most marketers give. And so when we started the agency, the premise was we have to hold ourselves accountable to conversions and we have to be able to track it. Otherwise, like, how are we going to keep clients? Like, I, I don't know how some agencies keep clients if they can't prove the ROI, it like blows my mind, but right. the, like most agencies don't for some reason. So I didn't know how to do it. So I think we hired a contractor on Upwork to like figure it out in GA or we experimented with a bunch of different analytics tools like Heap and, and some of those as well. But they were just too expensive for us at the time. I'm like, I can't pay a thousand dollars a month for like one client. It makes no sense. Right, so right. we ended up figuring out that GA has this report built in called the model comparison tool, which can help you track first and last click conversions from content, which is good enough. Again, 
I'm not saying it's a perfect, perfect measure where there's probably a ton of leads that come in that we just can't attribute back to us. I know that just because of our own site, like hmm. we'll get a lead. So one of the limitations in GA is that you can only see leads within a 90 day cookie window. Right. And with GDPR and like all this blocking of cookies, I'm sure that number is not as high as it should be. So I know it's not perfect, but again, if you can show a company, company, this is the lowest limit estimate of what we're actually driving. So we can mm. prove to you we're, we're driving 20 leads, but the number is probably 30, 40, at least, especially if you're ROI positive on that lower limit, they know this is a very profitable engagement. And so right. that's, that's how we think about conversions. And so the key is holding ourselves accountable to the same metric that the company cares about and then being able to show proof that the process is working. And so, yeah, I'd say that's kind of just how we re rethought that process. Yeah. I want to get, um, I want to ask you a question about the content or the content conversion side of things. Cause sure. again, one of those things that people probably, um, just kind of think the standard way and anyways, I'll get into it, but I'm curious on the organic promotion side of things. Like, are you still doing some community driven promotion? Uh, are there other ways you're driving organic traffic? You mentioned link building and sort of pain point SEO. I was wondering if you could kind of walk through sure. how those organic sides also play into the promotion. Yeah, so the organic side, we it's two things. It's the strategy, which I think is the most important part. We actually just did uh, a YouTube interview with Bernard of ClearScope on Friday that we'll publish on YouTube next week. But what was interesting is as we started to get into the conversation with him, he shared very similar sentiment to what we've kind of been realizing. And I've gotten a ton of pushback on Twitter and everywhere that I posted about it when I say links don't matter as much as people think that they do. Hmm. And everyone likes to come back and say, you're wrong, you're an idiot, you don't know what you're <laughs> talking about. And I'm not saying links don't matter at all. I, I think that would just be a stupid thing to say because of course they do. If you're starting from a domain of zero and you're trying to get SEO traffic, it's gonna be very difficult. But what I started to realize, so I guess the misconception that I had coming into this was that you needed like 10 to 50 to 100 links in order to get your content to rank. I, again, it's kind of like content where everyone kind of has this thought that it's a volume play. The more links you get, the better. Mm -hmm. And the more content that you produce, the better. And that's not true. It's the more strategic you are with your content, the better the more strategic you are with building links, the better and mm. the faster you can drive results. And so on the organic side, there's two things that we do. It starts with the strategy. So I think, again, the most important part is identifying the keywords from a conversion perspective and also just from how easy, how easy can I rank for this keyword? Um, the second most important piece is then what do you write for that keyword? So this is the whole our conversation with Bernard is around this topic of if you're going to go after a keyword, how do you determine what to write for that keyword? What, yeah. what type of content is going to give you the best chance to rank for that keyword that you're going after? Is it a list post? Is it a how to, how do you determine what Google wants? That's where I think 
I think we do a very good job at that is we start it. So we have the same process that Bernard shared, which was actually really interesting. We got it to it from two different angles. His is more formulaic. Ours is more, I would say, an art form, I guess. <laughs> intuitive, yeah. Yeah, it's not intuitive. I would just say, here, I'll, I'll share a process and I'll explain. Yeah. So basically what we do, we go into Google, we search whatever keyword we're going after, and you just look at what are the top 10 results that are showing up for this keyword? And then you kind of just go down the search results. Oh, this is interesting. There's five list posts here, or there's five comparison pieces. Then there's a product page, there's this, there's that. And so you can, and then you can see like, what are the titles of the blog posts that are coming up? So like, what is Google thinking the intent of this search is? And what are the, the types of pieces that it's ranking? And then, mm -hmm. so you can kind of back into, okay, that's interesting. If there's five comparison pieces, that kind of indicates to me that Google wants a comparison piece for this keyword, we should do a comparison piece. And then, so that's the first part of the process. The second part then goes into, if we click into those, what's missing in each of those comparison pieces? So like, what would we do differently or what's not that great or what details are missing? And so it starts with, what like framework should we use for the content? And then it goes into what actually needs to be in this content. Then we do the interview with the, the client and, and get their deep subject matter expertise on this. But it starts with that as a, we do this research before interviewing someone. So we know what holes to fill in the article. And then we write the piece, publish it. And then, oh, we use ClearScope. I'll, I'll plug Bernard because that was actually a huge piece in our process that was missing, um, which I don't care what tool you use, but I do think what I'm seeing is this idea of content quality and um, like content quality grading. I think SEMrush does something like this. I think ClearScope, there's Surfer SEO. There's a ton of tools that are starting to do this, but I think it's called semantic search. It's basically it's a tool that helps you figure out are all the entities or categories of this search in the post. Right. Like anything, I think a lot of marketers butcher this process because they think if I just keyword stuff in this tool and I get an A plus, it'll work. But it's, again, it's a lot more nuanced than that. It, it starts with what is the searcher trying to accomplish? What is the best type of article I should write to help the searcher accomplish that? how can I be the most comprehensive in the article about this topic? And then the last checkbox is just, does ClearScope or one of these tools, after going through this whole process, do they also agree that I've covered everything? Mm, that's that's yeah. how you use that. It's like a checkbox. It's not, it's not the answer. The ClearScope is not the strategy. It's the tool to help you solve this problem. Mm. Um, so after that, then we publish the blog post and then it, it, so we usually wait like two to four weeks before we build any links to the article. The reason being, we wanna see where it sits in the search results before we do anything to it. Um, and that kind of indicates to us how difficult it's gonna be to build links to this. So right out of the gate, if it shows up in the first two to three pages, not that difficult. I, I'd say we can probably get it to the first page and between one to four months, uh, depending on the keyword, just by building one link at a time. So again, this is not a high volume game. It's about yeah. identifying relevant sites in the industry. So again, if you're 
like we have a client that's a concussion treatment center. So a link coming from a marketing site is not going to be relevant, but so we have to place links on medical health related sites. And so it's all done through uh, guest blogging. So we actually work with a, a subcontracting agency that specializes in link building. They have a team of people that write guest blog posts. It's not as high quality as what we're writing for our clients. Um, but then they play some on these relevant sites in the industry. And one of the links in the article will be a link back to the article mm. that we're trying to build links to. Right. And so it's this whole process together, I think that gets SEO to work in the traction. And like I said before, I think part of the problem is people try to take shortcuts or think the tool is going to solve the problem for them. And it's very strategic and like every, like I walked through that process. There's a lot of time spent at each part of that process. Like to even come up with the idea, there's our, one of our strategists, me and Davis discussing this over like our phone calls. Hmm. Is this the best keyword to go after? Like, let's look at the search results. Does the, the articles there have the same intent as what, what we think it does? Then if it does, what's the best article? Then what do we need to put in the article? It's like, it's like a lengthy process. So each article takes us probably two to three weeks to create. Mm. It's not like a, a high churnout, high volume game at all. Yeah, like one or two a day, even sometimes, you know, you see some of these agencies uh, kind of crank out. What? So speaking about the, sure. the strategy side of things, um, you had mentioned earlier about how uh, you know, you're not just looking for any old content or the content that's, you know, producing the most traffic, but really the content that has the highest conversions. Um, so, so then taking that sort of mindset into the strategy side of things where you're actually sitting down and planning, Hey, what content are we going to create? Which keywords are we going to target? You're talking uh, with Davis about, you know, which ones you think are most related to the product. Like, are you sort of trying to pattern match that against um, other posts, you know, convert well or is there a certain framework or sort of way you're thinking like hey even if this doesn't have as much volume or even if it's a little more competitive it's closer to um or it's more likely to convert yeah there's this part there's a lot of nuance and how to do this so i will say yes of course having we have 15 or so active clients right now i think seeing what works across a ton of different businesses definitely shortcuts the learning curve for us to be able to be like, when we're starting with a new client, these are the articles that we should start with based off all of our learnings. hundred percent that helps. Um, that said, the, the challenge, so it all goes back to that customer research. So what we, what we learn in that customer research session, that's really valuable that ties into content strategy is what is the competitive advantage of this company? So especially if it's a SaaS company, you could view every SaaS company as like pretty much a commodity going after right. some space, solving some problem. So how do you differentiate one product versus all the other ones? You need to really focus in on what features that they excel at. So we get into even that kind of stuff in the customer research session. You have to, hmm. you have to ask like, okay, how would you compare yourself versus your competitors? We ask them this on the call. It's like, what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? Because if we create content talking about features that are their weaknesses versus their competitors, they're not going to convert as well. Mm. So even from a, a, a prioritization standpoint, 
we get into the details of what features and use cases are most used do people find most value from and are better than your other competitors and we start by targeting keywords that directly match to those knowing that if someone reads a blog post one we can truly argue that their product is better hmm. and that this keyword should solve this problem for someone that is searching for how to solve this and so it gets into a lot of that kind of stuff so yes part of it is just pulling like basically the whole framework that we use is pain point seo which is figuring out what the problems are that either the product solves for or what's what like an example i could give is just like i don't know if you had a, a protein shake business or like a protein powder business if you were searching for a protein you might search for what are the best protein powders but then it gets even more specific so here's where like the nuances of the product would come into play so let's say you had a vegan protein company and you use some special vegan protein in your product and it solved some problem for i don't know people so going after best protein powders now isn't the best keyword you could go after you would want to be more specific and say, I want to be exclusive to people that are searching for vegan protein. So you would, you would want to, even if the search volume is way lower, it directly matches the value of the product. So you would want to say, I want to go after best vegan proteins or something like that. And then, and maybe why weight proteins are bad. Like, so everything that kind of builds on that, that promise and the competitive advantage and so, yeah, that, that's kind of how we think about just prioritizing in the content strategy piece. Yeah, I, I, like, I think that's really, really key. So just to repeat it, um, you really want to match the content that you're creating with sort of the way that you're positioning your product and, or, or service, right? Of like, what are the unique features and the things that people would come to? And like you said, if you're only creating content that supports the weaknesses or maybe parts that people don't come to you for, then maybe that's the reason why you're going to have low converting content. Um, said it better than I did. Okay, perfect. I'm just synthesizing. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just here to, to summarize, um, to play devil's advocate here for sure. a second. Um, especially for like that, you know, what people call it like bottom of funnel kind of content or pain point SEO. It, it, it would seem like there's kind of a, a limited, um, amount of opportunity. Like, you know, you create the five competitor comparison posts, the, the three kind of best of X posts, um, maybe, you know, another two related to kind of key features of value props. And, and then, then where do you go? So one, I'm wondering, is that the case? And two, like how, how much opportunity is there before you feel like it's a little bit exhausted? Yes and no. So I think people think their bottom of the funnel is more limited than that they actually is because they don't think outside the box enough. So they just think for like the literal stuff. I would say most of pain point SEO and what we do is probably more like middle of the funnel. It's not maybe direct buying keywords, but it's use cases, it's problems that people are searching for. It's that kind of stuff that there's a ton of volume and it's pretty much, there's infinite and you can just get way more specific too. So another thing that we do is use Google suggested search. Like what are questions that people are asking around this topic? If we type in a query, 
the people also ask in in Google is a great place to, to find topics related to that. that. Uh, same with the searches related to it at the very bottom. So I don't think we've ever had a client where we've run out of keyword ideas. It just keeps going. So we start with the mm -hmm. bottom of the funnel and then just move up. And when you move up, I mean, there's, there's tons of different stuff that you can go after. But I think to make this more valuable, if you have a company that you have in mind that you're thinking there might be limited opportunity, we can just walk through this exercise together. I don't know Let's if do you it. have one in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So here's one. Uh, it's a consulting client of mine right, right now that I'm working with. It's Derek Reimer at SavvyCal. So it's essentially a Calendly competitor. Um, you can just go to SavvyCal.com with two Vs, one L. Um, and so to walk you through it, give you a little bit of information about it. Screen share? It's a little bit more useful. Yeah. Yeah. I can screen share. Here, let me, let me pull this up. Um, podcast recording won't be able to hear it, but I can link to it uh, afterwards. And so let me pull this up here. So we're just working on a new landing page right now, but I'll show you maybe one that'll kind of like summarize sure. some of the uh, key differentiators. Yeah, my first question would just be, what's the difference between Savvy Cal versus Calendly or any of the other products out there? Perfect, amazing. There so. Uh, I'll kind of like talk through the landing page, which sure. we actually just published today. So it's amazing timing. Um, but basically some of, one of the, the high level things that we're trying to point on is that a lot of people have a weird feeling about Calendly. Um, maybe some people, you know, see it as a nuisance or they see it as uh, something that has like a weird power dynamic or they're just not comfortable. Maybe this is a me. little bit. Yeah, I am that right? person. Okay, interesting. Um, so the thought and the way we're trying to position it is, Hey, Calendly kind of has this weird power dynamic. What if there was a, uh, a scheduling tool that you can feel comfortable sharing because you know that at the other end, they will enjoy the experience. It'll be a positive mm -hmm. experience. Um, so we say, you know, finally something or a meeting scheduling tool that both the sender and the recipient will love. To get into it a little bit, we uh, kind of give some compliments to Calendly, but then we get into um, the actual like nitty gritty features, which are the ability to create personalized links where you can basically kind of preload someone's information and then create an individual link just for that person to schedule a time with you. Um, they can also overlay their own calendar, which is a little bit different than what Calendly does. And not everyone even knows that it exists, but you can create a free Calendly account and then it'll like show the mutual availability, but it won't actually show you your calendar. It'll just show you like the, um, the meetings that you already have scheduled. Um, one of my big pain points, what I dropped, drew me to Savvy Cal is actually uh, the way that you can change your availability on the yes. fly. Thank you. Uh, that's, that's my, I hate, I hate Calendly. Right. And I, I feel bad for anyone who maybe works there, but my frustration is like, I send my link to someone and then they can just book whatever time is open. And like, sometimes I accidentally have like 5 p.m. or like 4 p.m. and it's like late in the day or something right. comes up that's not on my calendar that I need to do. And now someone took control of my calendar and I don't have the ability to control it. Exactly. Yeah. So, so there's a few things you can do. One is you can create these kind of presets. So you can say, Hey, here's all my morning times, uh, afternoon times, maybe like extra times. And then you can display them in the, the sort of order that you would prefer. So you can show like 
maybe mornings first and then they don't have time you can show evenings and then if they don't have then you can show a really early morning for example or maybe even an extra day that you don't normally don't do meetings um, you can also uh, have multiple durations so it can be you know instead of having a, a different link for your 15 30 and hour long meetings that can all be kind of consolidated into one and then also as you share it you can allow block or even force block off time on your calendar so that again you never run in that situation where you're like what the heck i have a meeting at 6 p.m on a friday like this sucks okay i would need to so beyond that i don't know if this is going to make the best example just because i don't know how far along the product is and how much how many customers they have so one of the one of the key so this is a good point to bring up one of the key challenges with doing content marketing for an early company who doesn't have a ton of customers is just like with marketing overall, as a founder, you have these assumptions about what customers care about, but it is yet to be proven that the features and your messaging and positioning are actually what customers care about and that there's right. enough there to, to really have the product take off. So, so like, let's just let's just walk through a couple of these. So like calendar. So where my mind goes, so the simple stuff, online meeting scheduling tool. So again, you might not think, you might just search for like calendar app or something like that. But no, online meeting scheduling tool is probably more of just some bottom of the funnel keyword that maybe doesn't come to mind initially. Then when I search that, I see that Doodle is one of the top results. So that leads me to another um, comparison page that I may go after. And then you start. So then I would look for, so like one of the key features here is availability. So adjusting availability. So calendar, I'm just gonna see what comes up. Calendar adjust availability. How do I change my calendar schedule? Might be a topic. Hmm. How to so like how to set working hours in Google Calendar? So there's all these questions about how people are using Google Calendar. So even there, writing about those topics, you might be able to say either this isn't possible in Google Cal, or and you should try Savvy Cal, or you just help them solve that problem there and say, by the way, if you want to schedule meetings we have this app that, that helps you do this in a, in a better way and present your, your use case there. And that's where I, I say there's like infinite questions or like things in related products. So there's ways that people use Calendly. So you could even beyond just doing an alternatives page for Calendly, you can write blog posts about the frustrations that people have using Calendly. So even on this call, we just came to the conclusion, we both share the same frustration with the same product in the same way that it works. There's probably a ton of other people that have that same problem. So like Calendly, if we were to search for that, it's set availability. Oh, look, there is suggested search like that. So there's a blog post on the Calendly blog. How do I set my availability? But again, you could write after that keyword. So how to, so people are typing in how to limit availability in, in Calendly. So again, if people are already searching for that, there's probably a ton of people that share that same problem. And I would say that's an opportunity to write about, to say, this isn't 
this is why we, you could even say the founding story. This is why we created this product because Calendly wasn't doing this well. And we wanted to create a better product to do that. Here's how it works in Calendly. Here's how it works in our tool. And that's why I said, it's just like a little outside of the box thinking. It's not everything needs to be calendar app or online meeting scheduler. Oh, it's right, like, right. It's, if you think about the use cases and the problems that people have with other products and the problems that they're trying to solve for, what would they search for to find a solution like Savvy Cal? And so mm. it's just, you have to think from the customer's mindset. And so what I, so even, even without doing customer research, you can usually get a lot just by going through the website and trying to see what the company calls out as their core differences and their competitive advantages. The reason why I don't like doing that is because not a lot of companies are great at messaging and positioning. So sometimes you don't see a lot of the nuances make it to the homepage. And so that's where right. it really takes um, talking to some of the people on the team to really pull these out. But even, even here, so we can talk about personalization. If I went into like calendar personalization, I just start with those, those keywords and then see what other questions pop up, what are other searches related to this that actually match with a feature that we offer. And then I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And you dig in there. So you kind of end up getting into this rabbit hole of you, you come into a few terms or problems and then you see where the search takes you until you find something that directly relates to what the problem uh, is mm -hmm. your product solves for. So to play the devil's advocate uh, one more time, sure. one of the other, I think, objections uh, I would have just kind of like uh, as a reflex or as a, a reflex, but also probably other people are thinking it is like, what if some of these topics don't have a ton of, um, you know, oh, search yeah. volume based off of what you see in Ahrefs or SEMrush? Um, for example, you know, would it really be worth it, for example, to write a whole blog post about something that 10 people per month uh, search yes. um, or yes, because, it looks like that they search for. Yes, because if 10 people are searching for something that indicates that they would be a great user of your product, that is more valuable than something that has high volume that's not as directly related to your product. So mm -hmm. we, have, we have this blog post on our site that has this screenshot of conversion results. And in it, there's one blog post that has 10,000 visitors and I think it was like 46 or seven conversions or something like that. And then there's another blog post that has a thousand visitors and 51 conversions. The conversion rate is 4.3% for that bottom one. And in any SEO tool, when we wrote the piece, it showed no search volume. No search wow. volume in any SEO tool doesn't mean there's no search volume from it. It just means that it doesn't necessarily track that. But again, that that blog post was so dead on from what users cared about right before buying that it converted at a four times, or no, like 10 times rate compared to some of the other stuff, despite there being lower traffic. And so again, if you flip the thinking to conversion intent first, and what is the end goal that I actually care about? Is it that traffic, which can be somewhat of a vanity metric, depending on what you're going after? or is it the conversions? I would take conversions all day. And so I would argue, we, we do it all the time. There's, there's blog posts that will prioritize that have 10 or 20 volume over a search term that has 250 volume, just because we know if someone is searching for this, it is so dead on for 
the, the problem that the product the product solves for. It's like that it is their competitive advantage. This someone searching this indicates that they have this exact problem that my product is uniquely positioned to solve for. And so I would write that low volume stuff all day before going after some of the higher volume stuff. Because even if you rank for something like online meeting scheduling app, again, there's a ton of different options. So even there, you'd have to make the case that your product is, is very different or very unique or has some advantage that all the other tools don't have. And that might be true. You might have a, like just a truly better product. And so it'll work because when you're comparing yourself to other options, you truly believe I have the best product out there. But oftentimes that's not the case. Like there's other products that are better in some areas. And so it's better to focus on what are those features or use cases that my product is best for and prioritize those first and come back to all the other stuff down the road. Mm. Yo, what do you think? Um, let's just say, for example, uh, I'm going to play a devil's advocate more, but sure. uh, uh, for example, if someone, if you're going through the process, uh, maybe you were in-house, you're a first marketing hire and you were like, Hey, these are some really interesting blog posts, but maybe they're not converting very well. Were you getting a lot of interest of even on the bottom of funnel of, Hey, you know, we're getting 20 people in per month on this one blog post and 10 of them are starting a trial, but then none of them are converting. And you have an indication that maybe it's the product itself. Um, what do you do about that? Do you have to go then and sort of, you know, beg to the CTO or to whoever's right. in charge of the product? Um, do you move on and target something else based on what, where you can win? How do you think about that? No, I would say it is a product problem. Like, mm. More often than not. So again, it goes back to why we don't work with early companies. So the, the two criteria that we have to work with any company is have they proven that they can market and sell through a cold channel? The reason behind that is because if you haven't proven that, so you've worked in startups, oftentimes a lot of these companies will grow through partnerships or um, referrals and that's their main mechanism. They're like, oh yeah, we have word of mouth. Our product is so great. Just people just tell other people and we're getting all these sales, but now we need to scale beyond referrals. Okay, but have you proven that your website can convert cold people who know nothing about you? The reason why is because someone who explains your product and the value to someone else is gonna be better than someone coming to your website cold and you trying to explain that value proposition to them. Right. So oftentimes the way that someone else explains your product and the value that they get from it, and they're all excited about it, can convince someone more than your website does. And as we said before, a lot of companies have bad messaging and positioning on their website, and it doesn't truly express the value or the competitive advantage of the product compared to all the other alternatives. And so the website, when people land there, is just doing a disservice. It doesn't communicate anything. Hmm. And so we need to have that proven that they've either run cold emails and push people to a landing page or their homepage, or they've done Google ads, or they've sold um, through some outbound mechanism where they push people to the website and then people opted in like on their own before we'll do content marketing from them. Because I will say that it, it is either a messaging problem or a product problem. So I like to think of content marketing for SaaS as 
discovery versus for a service business, trust. In terms of the goals that content solves for. Why? Because with a SaaS business, your goal is just to help someone find the product that can help them. And then the product is supposed to sell itself through the free trial or through a paid trial or through trying the product. And almost every SaaS product, there's either a demo or a trial or some way that you can experience it and figure out if the product is valuable enough for you. So the goal of content marketing is what are the keywords or blog posts that I can write that will just help someone discover my solution and get them interested enough just to try it. And then the product sells itself Hmm. on the service business side. It's very different because you're selling a very high price service and there's no way for someone to experience it, regardless of if you do some like, Oh, we'll give you a 30 minute consultation or like, we'll give you some free strategy advice. This is like the service business alternative of trying to be the free trial. But the reality is it all comes down to how much someone trusts you to execute on the strategy that you say you can execute on. Mm -hmm. And so I think the strategy for a, a service business is completely different because you're selling trust. You have to, you have to share your thinking, your strategy, like in, sorry, in a, in a way that convinces someone that they should try your service out and as try, I mean, commit to it. Right. And so the, the strategy I think varies differently. And that's why in that pain point SEO blog post, we say this is mostly used for um, SaaS companies and e-commerce companies versus a service business. So in our business, I think, and it's not to say pain point SEO doesn't work. We've actually have two agencies that we do marketing for as well. Mm. Um, I just think the way the idea comes about is different. On the service business side, we start with what is um, what is the pain point slash opinion of how this company thinks about solving this problem differently than every other agency. And then we back into, is there a keyword we can wrap around this blog post versus a SaaS business? We go keyword first. So it starts with a pain point, but then it goes keyword. And then it's like, what do we write about to rank for this keyword? Right. There's, there's, there's that nuanced difference in that. What you say in the service business, I think matters way more in the blog post because you're selling the strategy and the strategic thinking and the execution. You have to show people the results versus again, SaaS is discovery. So I just need to discover this product. I need to have a a aha moment somewhere in this blog post that shows me this product can solve the problem. And so the main goal is just getting people to discover the product and then selling it through whatever conversion mechanism you have. Yeah, that's, that's pretty, I had never thought about it that way. So how they're basically flipped on their head between SaaS and services. And it makes sense again with the way that people evaluate um, a purchase decision, right? Or the way that they make a decision uh, depending on the product it's going to depend, right? And what are the risks involved and what are the things the, the boxes they need to check, the approval they need to get, um, et cetera. Going back to uh, conversion, sorry, we're going to say something. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say this, this nuance is something that we've learned recently. And it's, it's from having a couple different agency clients and trying to figure out what is the difference between what mm-hmm. we're doing versus the other agency doing versus the other agency doing. 
if we think we have very similar strategies, why are some working better than others? And I think it comes down to the service and the differentiate. So it, it comes back to positioning, the messaging and the service. The more you are unique in what you offer and how you differentiate from all the other agencies, it reflects itself in the content. And so if, if your agency is kind of just a me too agency, you have kind of similar services as to everyone else. To be honest, I don't know if content marketing is going to work that well from you because you don't have unique opinions. You don't have controversy. You have nothing that makes you different that you can explain. My agency is different in this way and therefore you should hire me. And so what we've realized is that content marketing working for service businesses is more of a function of the differentiation and positioning. I think that, and the service offering, I think that matters so much in a service business to where I think in a SaaS business, you can get away with it a little bit more because there's so many options and like really the, the differences in features is, is usually minimal. Like there's not a feature that's typically 10x better than the other one right. to where you're going to pick this product. It's just, it's a function of choice. It's, it's which, which product you end up going with. But on the service business side, I, I think you really have to think through your positioning and what makes you different and what's your competitive advantage and then be able to express that through opinions and, and a blog post. And I think if you don't have, if you don't start with that, I don't think there's any blog post that can really drive tons of leads for you. Unless let's say you're ranking for something like e-commerce content marketing agency or something like right. that, then you can get right. leads. There's, there's a couple of those bottom of the funnel terms for agencies, but beyond that, what you maybe e-commerce content strategy, there's only like a few keywords there. Whereas I think it's much more built on opinions and breaking down what you're seeing other people doing, maybe not as well as you think they should be there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now the next part, the next sort of step of that is that um, you have someone on your blog posts sure. or because either it's a SaaS company and you have a bottom of funnel keyword that you're targeting related to the product and how you're different or your services business. And, um, you know, it, it's basically a wrapper around your unique view on the market and how you think things should be done. Then how do you get them to become a lead or to start a trial to get a demo? Um, like what are the actual kind of conversion tactics that you're using on each blog post and the nuances between how you choose, uh, so, for yeah. each one? I think it all comes down to, so we, we do one thing, which is basically we have inline CTAs within the blog post hmm. three times. That's it. Uh, so it's like at the, at the very beginning, we'll do an intro and have a CTA that's contextual to whatever we're talking about. So we try to tie the CTA to whatever you're reading about. So if it's, let's say for our own agency, we're writing a, an article on B2B content marketing strategy and we're, we're sharing a case study. It's like, if you want to hire us to do work, just like you've seen here, talk to us. If you want to learn how to execute the strategy for yourself, uh, sign up for a course. So that's pretty much all we do uh, for SaaS businesses and service businesses. Now, where there is nuance in that is that you could argue that if you're moving up the funnel, that even if you did that, 
just the conversion rate would be so low to direct product sign up or to a service. So you might as well capture emails for stuff that you know is not directly related to the service offering or product offering you have. And so in that case, I would say collecting emails makes sense. Also, I would say emails make a lot more sense to me for a service business than they do for a SaaS business. Hmm. Just because, well, I, I think they're important overall, but I think I view email differently than most people. I view it more as a distribution channel like you have this audience that's engaged. And so building that email list is a valuable asset to own. And the bigger my email list, the bigger of an audience I have to send new content to but that's pretty much the extent to how we use it. I don't really have some crazy nurturing strategy where it's like, I'm going to send you this email on user research, and then I'm going to have you read content strategy. And then you're going to be so impressed that now I'm going to pitch you my service and you're going to want to become a lead. I think more than anything is just staying top of mind, being helpful. Um, and in doing that, naturally people will just fall out the bottom of the funnel and want to work with you. If you're consistently providing value and you're not like, I don't really think of email as like, I think people are very strategic and tactical and maybe this is a fault on my end. I'm not saying our process is perfect by any means. But I just view it as, I view all of marketing as if you just help people and you try to add value more often than not, that's what's going to lead to new business. And you don't need to be, you don't need to over-engineer things. I think that's yeah. that's a problem that a lot of people have is that they try to feel like, if I was this user, this is going to be my buyer's journey and I'm going to start here and then, then I'm going to go here and then, well, maybe I'm still confused about this decision and then I'm going to want to read this article on this topic. And then I'm magically going to be ready to buy. And it's like, no one really has buyer behavior like that. It's like, yeah. you come across something, you remember it, then it shows up again. You're like, oh, this is actually better timing now. Like I should take a, a closer look at this. And that's, mm -hmm. that's more how I think about email. And so, yeah, we don't have like a crazy strategy other than e like using email capture to build up our own list, just like owned traffic. And then sending emails just whenever we have something valuable to say really and we could be better at that probably just i don't know writing more valuable things consistently but that's just our process right now right i think there's an interesting dichotomy with converting people straight off of uh, a blog post because it's like the better content that you write and the better targeted it is to those people the less work you should have to do to convert them right into a lead or a subscriber or whatever you want to call them. Um, whereas if you were like really top of funnel and you were just writing about anything, and everything, like I imagine, you know, like HubSpot, for example, was always top of mind for me. It's like, you know, the top performing blog posts are like emojis and, um, yeah, you know, exactly. random Your other logos, stuff. How to design, how to design a logo. And you're like, what does this have to do with content marketing again? Right. So, I mean, they're, yeah, they have to do a lot of work to convert someone into their whole ecosystem and then educate them, quote unquote, nurture. I have no idea how well that works or uh, how viable that is now. But the point being, you should have, it seems like you should have to do less work for sure. Better your content. That's is. why this process was created because if you're resource constrained and you don't have like a five person content team, what do you do? This, this process just makes more sense. If you own the buying keywords first, which, which always surprises me. You, you go into all these companies and they don't even own the most obvious keywords first. Hmm. Like why not just focus on the most valuable stuff first and then 
work your way up to the stuff that's less effective versus people focus on the less effective stuff first because they think, well, I need to do this first because I can't rank for this, the, the bottom of the funnel. And then I need to nurture these people. It's like, again, it's like over-engineering things. It's break it down. What's the simplest thing to do that's going to drive results? Let's try that versus like trying all this other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. Um, going back to, to one of the things, because I think the strategy is amazing. A lot of the content promotion stuff is, is pretty clear. Um, but who's actually doing the writing themselves? Um, now, obviously for you, you have the agency and you have a whole team and process in place for this, but for someone with, who's a marketer within a company, maybe a founder entrepreneur, um, how should they think about building out a team that can go and execute on this? Should they hire an agency? Should they hire uh, a content marketer? Should they hire a bunch of writers, full-time writers, freelance, um, like what are the best ways to actually go and execute on this? Yeah. Um, I think my perspective has obviously changed. I, I, pr- uh, prior to starting this agency, I would say never hire an agency, mm. but obviously that's changed and I'm, I'm biased there. <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> but I would, I would say steal our process. Really. I, I, I truly think the, the process is good. So if you're to hire a writer, do it the same way that we do. Don't hire a writer expecting them to be an expert in whatever subject matter. So like, even if you hire them full-time internally, they're not going to be the expert on, let's say product engineering or engineering or marketing or anything like that. So there's going to be topics that you write about that they're just never going to be able to be subject matter experts on. Have this person interview people on the team and write the articles with each person's expertise. And that'll, that'll also give a wide array of different perspectives on your blog instead of everything being written by the same person with the same perspective. And I think that's what you want. You want your company's voice to come through in everything you're writing. You want their perspective, their arguments, all that kind of stuff to come through in the writing. So I would say, do that. I would say it depends what stage the company is at. I think Hmm. the knee jerk reaction for many companies that are starting in content marketing is they want to hire a writer because it solves the immediate problem of, well, how do I, I I need content in order to like blog and do all this stuff. But I think the harder problem is on the strategy and uh, on the promotion side. Mm -hmm. So if I was doing this, I would find the content marketer first and have that person build the team of writers. Because I think Mm -hmm. even if you have the writer, it only solves the writing problem and it doesn't solve the marketing problem. And if you have either of those people without the other, I don't think it works. Like if we did any, the reason why we have a full service like we do is because if we broke out any part of our process, so if we just did customer research as a standalone service or just did content strategy as a standalone service or promotion or conversions, it's not gonna work. It's the whole process working together and holistically that drives the results. And it's the same thing here. Whereas if you just broke out the writing portion and you said, I'm just going to focus on finding the best writer, it's not really going to drive the results because then you need the strategy component. What do we write about? What keywords do we go after? Um, how do we drive links? How do we drive traffic to the articles? If you don't have that, no matter what you write, it's probably not going to get traction or 
it can, but it's going to take a lot longer than you want it to. Um, so I, I would, if I was in-house again, I would focus on finding the content marketer that does have some sort of conversion focus or is willing to learn and build out either a team of writers that can do this interview process or just find even a contract writer. It doesn't need to be full-time that can do this. Hmm. Or I would just hire us. <laughs> right. That, that's the... Uh... That's the end of the blog post, right? It's, or you can just hire us. Exactly. You um, make it sound very difficult and then you're like, oh, or you can just hire us. <laughs> I love that. Um, I'm, I'm curious about like, if you can sort of give a look under the hood of like the actual grow and convert sort of system and engine. Sure. Um, like we know a lot about the strategy side of things. We know how you think, why you design things, but like then how do you orchestrate things within the, the in, within the agency to actually deliver on what the client wants. Um, and I know there's a lot of like operational nuance. There's a Great lot of different question. roles between that. I'm curious how that's evolved over time. That's been the hardest part of the business by far. So our, our limiter to growth has never been leads. It's always been operations. Hmm. It has been a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of, I'm, I hate agencies and I don't know why I ever started one. Uh, there are just endless frustrations trying to figure out the operations, especially having never worked in an agency before. So I didn't have like a model to really go off of, but I think mm. now in hindsight, that was a blessing in disguise because I think everyone who comes from the agency world structures their business kind of in a similar manner. And we kind of rethought what, what the org structure would look like if we were just building one from scratch, basically just because we didn't really know what one looked like. Right. So the first challenge that we had to solve was just finding these writers. Um, so basically I, I can explain what our process or what our team looks like now, and then kind of work back to how we got there. Um, we have, everyone starts as a writer. So this came through hard learning experience that most content marketers have a different way of thinking about content marketing than we do. Hmm. And so hiring someone that has ex like experience already doing content marketing is going to come with bad habits and their own perspective and way to do things. And if we truly believe in our philosophy and strategy and process that we wanted to train people how to do our process instead of have hire someone with a ton of experience in content marketing. So that was like the first assumption. And then, then it came to, okay, well, what does that type of person look like? And I think this just came through a bunch of trial and error. Like I, I, just, I still don't even have a perfect answer for this, but what we've kind of learned is it's very difficult to train someone how to write, like to be a good writer. Like how do you even explain that? It, it's, the, it's just such a difficult problem to solve. Whereas training someone our process in marketing, like not, they don't have to be an expert in all of marketing. They just need to be really good at executing our strategy hmm. is a lot easier to train someone than to train someone how to write. So every single person that even is a strategist, a strategist in our company has started as a writer. So we find those people, we work with them on a few pieces to see how they do. And then we'll put them on a real account then they'll start writing for that real account. 
um, on a consistent basis. Then they'll start writing for multiple accounts on a consistent basis to see how they do in different subject matter. And then they, if they opt in, they can become a content strategist. So not everyone wants to be a strategist. The difference between a writer and a strategist on our side, writer is doing the interviews, they're, uh, they're writing the pieces, and they do a questionnaire, which is kind of how we do a lot of that pre-work before they start writing. The strategist does the content strategy. So they present us content ideas every month and we debate these with them. Um, then they're managing the results. They're coordinating things with the client. They're presenting the ideas to the client. They're, um, they're identifying opportunities to do the link building. They're looking at Facebook ads and seeing where traffic is. So that they're like more of like the marketer who's owning the account. And so right. it just starts small, like it starts with the writing role and they basically work their way up. And so now our strategists that have been with us the longest run three accounts on average. Um, but everyone starts writing and then they grow from there and they grow their responsibilities with the company. Do you have more questions to dig in there even more? Go back. To, yeah, no, keep going. Cause I want to hear about like how that's, how that's changed and evolved uh, from sort of. Yeah. So, so I would say the operations is just the hardest part to figure out because I think everyone's coming into a business thinking that there's going to be some playbook or that there's some org, org structure that they can steal. And I think just from my experience, I don't know if this is true for everyone. I just find that not to be true. Just mm -hmm. kind of like in marketing, everything is kind of have a hypothesis, test it, measure it, and then move forward. I find it's the same process in figuring out operations. There is mm -hmm. no org structure that makes sense for every business. It's like, even in hiring, you, you have a, a couple of different hypotheses. You, you basically have like the job responsibilities that you need to be completed. Then you have a hypothesis about what type of person that you're looking for. Then you go find that person, you test them, and then they either work or you're done. And then you try to assess what is it about that? Is it the person? Is it that I gave them the wrong responsibilities? Was there a mismatch in expectations? Like, what was it that's wrong? Get the feedback from that person. Try it again. So until this year in our business, I would say our operations was not that great. Uh, we had like pieces that were late falling through the cracks, like just, just things that were not perfect. And this year, the focus of our business has really been fixed, like really fix the hiring issues. So we just had trouble like figuring out who to hire. And another big learning is just, I think on the hiring front, and this is a mistake I see all companies make, is that they think that they're going to hire someone that is just perfect for the role and let them be, and they're just going to be like amazing. Mm -hmm. And sure, that happens. There, there's great people that come into roles who just the second they come in, you're like, oh, I'm glad they're here and they can execute. But more often than not, that's not true. And I, the big learning for us is just training. Why aren't companies spending more time training? So like, mm. if we have this process, we're expecting everyone to be great at this process. And we write out the process on like a piece of paper or like a video. And then you, you're saying, hey, here, go do this in your own time. And then you expect them to be great. It's just crazy. It, it's just not realistic. Yeah. And so this year we've focused on building out like a whole 
training program for the team. And so someone gets onboarded into the strategist role, they go through our, our training program and it walks through every situation that people can go through, how to do the ideation, how to like basically takes all the pieces of our process. Then they test it and then they shadow us. So we're doing like, I, I, I basically work with every new strategist for two to three months before wow. I feel comfortable with them, like starting to do things on their own. So there's a much more, um, yeah, there's much more of a training component than I would have ever thought going into this business. And that, that I think has been the biggest learning to unlock what are the issues in, in the operations and get that feedback to help fix some of these problems. Um, and just to, to get people at a better level, uh, much faster. Yeah. Yeah. The, the training piece is really key. I think, uh, Again, this is from my personal experience. I know you've sort of gone through the same thing, but I feel like especially from marketing, you you hire someone, you expect them to do the job, sort of just instantly plug in, and then a month later start seeing results. Yep. And it's like, is that really indicative or is that really sort of the truth of what someone needs in order to do the best work and in order to really get it and understand and fit in and find their place and role within sort of this system that is a business um, one, one of the other things I've been thinking about is, uh, I know this isn't necessarily the case for grow and converter, or maybe it is, sure. but, uh, mainly at companies where there's maybe sort of a, uh, a big time, you know, CEO or some sort of, you know, celebrity investor, you get someone who has like a personal brand that kind of like, um, creates a halo effect around the company. But more, hard. <laughs> right, more often you've been seeing sort of people that uh, sort of rise up within a company and are not the CEO or maybe not even in leadership team, but they're creating a personal brand connected to the company. Um, have, have you thought about this at all? Like it's just something that I've been noticing more recently. Thought about it in what way? Like, uh, is there a strategy behind it? Um, is it good? Is it bad? Like, how do you handle the dynamics? I was thinking for a grown convert when you have a strategist or you have a writer who's working with the client, like, obviously you want them to do well. Um, but like, do you want to, are you trying to enable them to create a yes. personal brand as well? Um, are you trying okay. to give them a halo effect? Yeah, I think so. Like I would love if every single person in our company had a personal brand. I think there's a lot of people that think it's a negative because if they draw too much attention to themselves, then they're going to go off and start their own thing. And so they're worried about like enabling people to, to have this brand because potentially it could steer them in a direct, another direction. Look, I don't, I don't think that's a negative. Like, I, I think you should empower people to do that. I think the more you do that, the more it does have like compounding effects. Like, instead of just me being on Twitter, like Davis doesn't like being on Twitter. So it's pretty much just me. Um, but if, if he was active on Twitter, it would just amplify our reach. And if I had five people that were active on Twitter or social and they were sharing their case studies and talking about their work and things that they've done, it's way more beneficial to our brand than just one person. And so mm. I, I don't think of it as like a, a competition thing. I, I think, I think they're two separate issues. One, I think, cool. If someone's going to build their personal brand, empower them to do it, help them do it. And then in terms of keeping them, just make sure you're creating a great work environment for people. If you have a really shitty work environment, unrealistic expectations of people, you pay them like shit. And then, and then you have people creating their personal brand. Of course they're going to leave. 
But if you, right. if, if your focus is on how do I help my people become better at their job, get to where they want to go in their career, um, whether that means building their personal brand, and then you're as a company, you're focused on like paying them all, creating a great work environment, like all that kind of stuff, then they can create a personal brand, help you, and they're not going to leave because there's no better option than what you provide. So I think it's just changing the mindset. It goes back to like our two goals as a business. Like I've had a lot of people asking us about this lately, especially mm-hmm. as we talk to other founders and they're like, oh, what's your end goal? Like, what are you trying to do with this? Like, what's your exit strategy? I get that question like more often than not. And people are always surprised when it's like, I don't know. Like, I don't have an answer. There's no number that I'm trying to hit. And that might sound weird to people, but I think I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I think money is a horrible focus for a business because it, mm-hmm. foc- it if, if we think everything comes back to incentives, incentives drive decisions, then like focusing on money, what does that really do? You make poor decisions if you have just some revenue goal in mind. So, or like profit goal, let's say, you're trying to hit 5 million in revenue. What are you going to do? You're incentivized to take shitty clients that help you hit to that goal, even if it might be negative for your team. Because again, money is the main driver of the organization versus our two main goals, create the best service that does content marketing, create the best work environment for our team. If you do those two things well, all the money will follow because you're, you're hiring the best people because you're taking care of them. You're creating the best work environment for them. And you truly have the best service on the market for what you do. So like naturally you're going to create more market share as you continue to get better. Mm. I, I think if you have those kind of goals, all, all the monetary stuff and everything else just kind of follows that. And I think how, like that came from, I think, being in Silicon Valley and seeing how many poor business decisions got made because people were focused on the wrong things. They're focused on how much headcount I have. It's like an ego thing. It's like, how much money did I raise? Well, did you need to raise that much money? And oftentimes I saw companies fail because they took on a shitload of money. They hired too quickly. They didn't make the proper decisions and then they're gone in two years. And so like, Money doesn't solve all problems. And I think that's what I'm seeing more and more of is just there's this obsessive focus on how much did you exit for? Like success is determined by how much money you have. And it's like really not. If, if you just focus it to what are the goals that I actually need to achieve that make my business a better place, both for clients, for my customers, for my team, if you can do those things well, then your business will just grow exponentially because everyone else is focused on money and making decisions based on things that don't really matter. And you're focused on the right things. Yeah. Yeah. I think about it, I mean, to, to sort of summarize, there's a lot of misaligned incentives, right? So yes. if you're, if your incentive is just to make money and the client's incentive is to achieve their revenue goals and get customers, et cetera, then there's obviously sort of an inherent um, misalignment there. But if your incentive is to also get them clients and is to provide value for them, then the money will follow afterwards. Um, but that's a hard thing to sort of accept because we need money to survive, right? And some people are powered by ego. So maybe that's a, that's a whole fundamental kind of philosophical we could probably change. Have a, yes, we can have a whole conversation <laughs> about that. 
Okay. Well, well, part two, we'll have to save sure. that. Um, to wrap up here or starting to wrap up, uh, let's take a sneak peek at your swipe file and just maybe walk through a couple of examples and campaigns that you think uh, were worthy of saving. Like, could you walk me through um, a few of your favorites that you have top of mind? Sure. To be honest, I don't have that many. So when you asked me that earlier, I thought about it and I'm like, what do I, what do I look at on a regular basis for inspiration? Yeah, no, that's fine. To be honest, now that I think of it, this is probably more in the moment. It's more Twitter. Hmm. I, I just scan Twitter and the reason why I'm active on it is because it just makes me think there's some, so like if, if I think of what Twitter is at the end of the day, it's like the world's stream of consciousness. <laughs> it's like everyone is just, you have an idea, you put it out there, you see how people react, you kind of hone in that idea. And it's like just a way to test a lot of different things. And my swipe file is just seeing what people are thinking about on there. So like, what are other people in the industry? Like, what are their opinions? Do I disagree with them or not? Why? It, it just makes me like kind of stop and think when I see something on there. Um, yeah, images, like websites, a, a lot of the time, like, I've gotten really into positioning and messaging as I know you have mainly just because I, I noticed the more, the more that I've done marketing as an agency, the more I realized how product market fit really affects, it, it is probably the biggest thing of whether a company will be successful or not. Davis likes mm -hmm. to say this all the time. And, and I finally started to come around to agreeing with him, but he says a company can just be a company just can have incredible product market fit and do everything wrong and somehow mm -hmm. succeed. Right. And, and I've started to see that more often. Like as we talk to different companies, you, you see these massive companies who've been around for like 30 years and they just have products and services that people want that have been well communicated to people. And you start, getting into the nitty gritty of their team and they have you like talk to their marketing team or talk to like some of their higher level executives and you're just like you're not impressed and you're like what how does this company still exist and and then you just realize like this company just has something that's the product that is so great that people want hmm. and that's why they still exist you could have like a hundred people that are actively trying to kill the company are just making poor decisions and somehow it still survives. And I think it really just comes back to a function of how strong the product market fit is. And then, so as we start to look at different startups or companies that we're consulting with or working with, I've, I've just realized how much not getting that right in the very beginning affects everything. And it's the most important thing. And so oftentimes when I'm just scanning Twitter or like looking at different websites. That's the first thing that I'm looking for is how does this, how does this website make me feel? Do I quickly understand what they do just by looking at their headline or is it really confusing? Hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what I've been using. The, the, yeah. the best example that I can give is probably if you want to let me share my screen. Yeah. Let me pull this up. The only, site that I've been really impressed by lately has been Stripe. And I didn't want to share this example because I just feel like, okay, I'm covering Stripe and they're like a well-known company that everyone knows they're far along. It's not like some startup that, that did really well, but I just think the messaging is so dead on. The design is so dead on. I just, I don't know. I really like the company. 
Yeah. Well, what is it about them specifically? Because I know some people think like, oh, well, it's, uh, it's, you know, Stripe is just kind of like trying to be the broad, you know, thing for everyone. When you try to become everything for every for everyone, then you end up becoming no one for anyone. Right. So what is it in particular? That they also just you? have the best product. So like, well, well, it's difficult for, let's say me to get in there and set it up. Like what other payment provider would I do to collect used to collect payments. Like there's no one that even comes to mind in my mind that I would use. So I think it's part product. Um, it's just the dash, like the dashboards are incredibly well designed for you to easily figure out your business metrics quickly as someone who is non-technical or like doesn't figure all this stuff out. The, there, it, everything's just like beautifully designed and they've just become known for payments. Like if you're asked how to collect payments on a website, literally at this point, I can't even think of another company that I would say, hmm. oh, you should try this product. Yeah, so that's interesting. Is that there's something it, about that. Like I, I can't even put it into words because yeah. it, it's been a function of everything that they've done probably over the last four to five years. I would say before that, still small. I was aware of them. I remember the first time I tried to use them, I think was in 2014 when I signed up not knowing it was for developers. And I'm like, I don't even know what to do here. <laughs> but then as, as I've grown this business and then you have developers on your team, it's so easy to just give them the product and say, set this up and then figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, there's the, the sort of like literal messaging and positioning of like what's on the website and sort of what's the marketing that they put out there. And then there's kind of like the, the, the market kind of um, mental positioning of like, what are they known for? And like, how long have they been in the game? And like, who uses them? And like, what other, you know, like how, what reminds me of them? Like what problems are associated with them? What kind of uh, solutions are associated with them? And Stripe has sort of become that ubiquitous, you know, in the market in everyone's brain payments, right? Or oh. even now kind of like SaaS billing is just like the ubiquitous thing. Yeah, I, I like to think of positioning as what you want other people to perceive about your product. Hmm. So internalizing, what is my competitive advantage? What are my strengths compared to every other competitor in the market? Um, yeah, like, what do I do well? Like, there's all these questions you need to answer. And then you have to validate that with your customers that they value the same things that you think are the best about your product or service. And once you come to that validation, that's what you use as your positioning, then your messaging is how you communicate that to others, essentially. And right. then I also think of it as like, and then your brand is basically what people perceive uh, of those two things. So like, how do other people see you? Like, do you do so you can measure mm. how good of a job you do in positioning and messaging by how people perceive your brand do when you ask other people about your brand, do they say the same things back that you think your strengths are do they do they know what your messaging is like can they communicate that back to you that's kind of how i think about that puzzle because i know people talk about these concepts and it's really like even for me getting into it like i would say i just started nerding out on this stuff like two <laughs> to three years ago it, it's complicated like yeah like if you said how do you build a brand where do you even start? You know, it's like, and most people go immediately to design or um, something like that. And that's what, or like a tagline or something like that. But right. how do you even come up with a tagline? 
It, mm. It's all stems off your positioning. Like what is the most valuable part of my company that I want to be known for? And how do I put that into a concise statement that people can agree with? It's all it, it, like positioning and messaging is at the crux of everything that you need to do in marketing. And mm. I think it's one of the under invested areas. And there are few marketers that are truly good at this. Hmm. It, it really is. It's, it's a practice of distilling. And like I said too, it's, I, when you, when you think through it, it, it feels obvious because you sort of like, you know, you've taken, which is it the red blue, the, the red pill or the blue pill, like whichever one is the enlightening one. And then now you see things differently. Right. But when you think about what a business is, it's, well, this is a unique product services that we're going to deliver, uh, that no one else can the way that we do. Right. And then like, that is the positioning. So now you just need to figure out a way to communicate that and then like get that out into the world. And if you don't have that good messaging positioning, either you suck at communicating it or you don't have anything to communicate. Right. And that can be the, the other kind of tough reality <laughs> that people yeah. face within their business. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, and sometimes it takes doing that exercise to realize, oh, maybe I don't really have as many competitive advantages as I thought, or maybe my product or service isn't as good as I thought. So maybe it ends up becoming back to like a product problem, or maybe I need to change my service offering to be a little bit more competitive. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. Well, Benji, I'll wrap up with my final question, which is what I call my, my guy Raz question. So for all the things that you've shared, the success you've had, uh, both with grown convert as well as on the agencies and many of the other um, products and services that we haven't even touched on, like Wordable and the course as well. Um, how much would you attribute to luck and how much to your own hard work? Huh. That is an extremely hard question. Um, I think luck comes from doing a lot of right things. So I wouldn't attribute everything to luck. Um, but it definitely plays some portion of it. Even hard work, I think that's kind of like a loaded term. So like, what, is, what does that mm. even mean? Is that like doing physical work? I would say I've always tried to work smart and not hard. Mm. I, I learned that the hard way. <laughs> like I learned that in college actually in my fraternity. It's like you can either work really hard or you can be smart and like figure out ways around the system. So I think it's more attributed to working smart than hard. So how, how do I do something to the best of my ability and spend the least time doing it? Mm. I think that that's something very important to always think about. And then breaking down problems to like the simplest form and, and then trying to solve those. And so if you're trying to solve the, the content marketing problem, what are all the components that go into content marketing? And then even within those, like what's broken or what works really well and how do I fix what's broken? How do I continue doing stuff that's going well? I think it's that sort of thinking and then taking very calculated risks. So I didn't share this story in this interview, but even for me, I left my job in San Francisco with like pretty much no savings. I sold everything that I had to work on Grow and Convert and left with $10,000 to go to Asia. And that was it. Like if I ran out of money, I had no fallback. As I said, like mm. my, my 
parents lost a lot of money, I couldn't go like have them support me or anything like that. I think I had, so this is kind of where I guess luck and hard work converge. A lot of people ask how to start a business or like when you know it's right, you just get a feeling like I was so, sh I was so confident that I was onto something and I didn't necessarily know what that was. Like at the time I started the business, I didn't know I would end up having an agency at all. I knew that I had something unique in content marketing that other people wanted. And I just, I knew I needed to get out of the situation that I was in. And so I bet on myself and I think it was extremely difficult. There was like 18 months where this business made no money. Hmm. But I think thinking through those problems in that way, trying to help other people and, and betting on yourself and, and thinking through also what's worst case scenario if this fails and like, what am I going to do in that case before just jumping and making that leap, I think is what kind of led to a lot of where I'm at now. Like, I think there's a lot of people who are in jobs who want to do things and they're in a comfortable place. And that's fine. But I, I, for, for me, I've always felt like every time I'm comfortable, that's risky mm. in, in a weird way. Uh, like every time I get too comfortable, I find the need to challenge myself again. And I think it's that kind of mindset that has kind of propelled me forward. Yeah. Well, Benji, appreciate you sharing everything. Uh, this is sort of a a masterclass and an extra long episode. So I appreciate you uh, being able to share everything and get through all the talking as well. But thanks for coming on the show and uh, spending your time with me. Yeah, thank you so much. I could talk to you for probably five more hours and then still not run out of things to talk about. Part two, next time we'll do it. Awesome. Thanks again to Benji for spending so long with me. If you can, pop on Twitter, give him a big thumbs up and a big thanks for dropping that masterclass in content marketing and let him know what you thought. To wrap up here, here are two of my biggest takeaways. One, I love Benji's thoughts on building up the personal brand of your employees. It's truer than we even know, and I suspect that it'll become more and more prevalent as marketers build up their own followings online. And also, number two, you gotta love Benji's thoughts on using Twitter ads. I've actually since gone and used what he teaches about Twitter ads successfully and appreciate him doing all the hard work of discovering what works in the first place so that the rest of us can replicate it. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swipefiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.